Because you know it's all about that drought, about that drought, no water. It's all about that drought, about that drought, no water. It's all about that drought, about that drought, no water. It's all about that drought, about that drought, 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 drought. Yeah, it's pretty clear, we're really short on blue. It's time to save it, save it, like we're supposed to do. Some say it's doom, gloom, and all our grass must go. But together we can make it and enjoy our golden state. It's all about that drought, about that drought. No water, it's all Well, good afternoon and welcome to The Water Zone on KCAA, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM. Having a wonderful day here in beautiful downtown San Bernardino. I'm your host, Rob Starr, along with Miss Inge Bisconer and Paul McFadden from the Toros MIB division down in El Cajon. Mike Barron is off today because today's show is Ag Week. So, uh, Inge and Paul, welcome to the show. Hi, Rob. How are you? I'm great. How are you guys doing? Good, thank you. We uh, enjoyed a little bit of rain here the last couple of days. Oh, I haven't seen any. <laughs> I guess we took it all from you. We're happy to take it. <laughs> well, I guess we got a great show from what I'm uh, what I'm seeing, and I'm very excited about that. And uh, I'll turn it over to you guys. Great, thank you, Rob. Our uh, first guest uh, this evening is uh, Dr. Charles Burt. Charles, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Excellent, thank you. Uh, uh, Charles is the a, a, a Ph.D., P.E., and chairman of the Irrigation Training and Research Center. He's a retired professor of uh, bioresource and agricultural engineering at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Uh, he has co-authored or authored over 120 articles and study guides related to on-farm irrigation, canal modernization, and efficiency. He has extensive field and uh, design experience in drip, sprinkler, and surface irrigation. He's done extensive field work and theoretical uh, experience in canal, pipeline, and pump modernization. Worked in over 26 countries. He's a registered civil engineer and agricultural engineer in California, a registered professional engineer in Utah, uh, the Irrigation Association's uh, National Person, Person of the Year in 1997, the California in, uh, Irrigation Institute's Person of the Year in, in the year 2000. He's got a Bachelor of Science in Soil Science from Cal Poly San Luis, master, uh, Master's Degree in Irrigation and Drainage Engineering at Utah State, and a Ph.D. in Engineering from Utah State University. And uh, most recently, uh, the uh, Irrigation and Training, Training and Research Center at Cal Poly was named the 2016 Irrigation Association Partner of the Year. So all of that, uh, welcome, Charles, to the Water Zone. Great. Boy, and congratulations on, on uh, all your accomplishments there, Charles. I've known you for a long time, and that's quite, quite an uh, impressive list. Congratulations. Thanks. Um, so uh, perhaps just to start off, Charles, if you could tell the listeners a little bit about your background and growing up and what uh, what interested you in getting into the irrigation water conveyance and, and movement uh, uh, industry. Sure, yeah. Well, um, I'm not from a farm, but I worked on farms as a peon, you know, as a laborer before college, you know, and in high school. And then uh, I was exposed to agriculture and irrigation there, of course. Um, 
then I kind of got interested in a different way in the Army in uh, Central Highlands in Vietnam in the 1960s. I got uh, exposed to digging wells and real crude irrigation. Um, I was a team chief of a um, team, anyway, that lived in a village. And then really what happened during college, I took some irrigation classes and got hooked. So just, uh, I don't know, it's like uh, being an addict. I can't get away from it now. <laughs> Water's kind of in your blood. You can't uh, can't get away from us. Yeah, well, there it is. Well, uh, well, you know, you've been you know an acclaimed expert on California water for quite a while. Maybe you can help our listening audience understand how California has a number of different water resources. You know, surface and ground, and and uh, snowpack and rain, and um, how they're inter interdependent on one another, and and how they're important and how we might even be considering other water sources. Can you comment on uh, on those things a little bit? Sure. Uh, you know, one thing that's real important for your listeners there in Southern California is to realize that state is all linked. In other words, that we have canals and pipelines bring water from the north down to the south and from the east over to the coast, and, and it's, it's really uh, intricate. And that makes California sort of special. Often there's water in a place, but you can't move it. But in California, we can move it all around. So if you have a shortage in one area, it really does impact another area. But basically, ultimately, the precipitation, that's rain or snow, is really the source of almost all our water, whether it falls in Colorado or up in northern California. There's a little bit of what we call geologic water that you find in a few places in the ground, but that's pretty rare. That's stuff that was deposited, you know, thousands of years ago. The surface water that's above ground is, is really linked to groundwater in two ways. Um, sometimes the water from the surface depercolates into the groundwater and fills up the what we call aquifers. And in other places, the groundwater is close to the ground surface and it actually recharges. So water can go either direction. And uh, for, for a long time, people looked at these as, it's two separate sources. That's groundwater and surface water. In fact, they'd say, well, how much groundwater do we have and how much surface water? And they'd add it up, and they'd come up with a real good-looking number. But uh, recently, people have begun to understand what a lot of us have been preaching for years, and that is they were double-counting. Uh, suddenly, they realized that they don't have as much water as they used to because the groundwater came from the surface water. Basically, groundwater is just like a reservoir. It just happens to be underground. And um, there are dozens of, of very distinct aquifers. Those are areas where there's uh, groundwater. Dozens of these uh, throughout California. And uh, But in the end, they're just like the dozens of reservoirs that we have on the Colorado River or in the mountains or even south of the Tehachapi's. Uh, you know, there are a lot of artificial reservoirs south of the Tehachapi's that uh, Metropolitan Water District or San Diego County Water Authority have set up. And, and they're... They're filled up with water that came from somewhere else. And, and believe it or not, we do the same thing with groundwater. There are quite a few what we call recharge ponds and uh, where we use surface water and fill up the groundwater for storage. And some of the Southern California utilities do that deliberately in the San Joaquin Valley, for example. Um, then, um, anyway, we, we're starting to understand everything needs to be managed. Uh, now, a big difference uh, here in California between snow and rain is that, that we don't have enough reservoirs to hold all that runoff that comes off the Cascades and the Sierras. So, fortunately, the snow takes time to melt 
and it, it continues to replenish the stream well into the summer. But that's changing. Our climate change, we have less and less snowpack. So we might get the same amount of precipitation, but it, it, we really used to depend on that snowpack as a storage reservoir. And then, of course, there's a new water source. That's water conservation. It, it's People are understanding that if they make true water conservation, that's equivalent to developing a new source like energy. But um, the thing is, a lot of the popular water conservation programs don't really save water. I mean, I mean if you have a low-flow showerhead and the, the water runs down into your sewer and that water is being recycled, it won't really save water. Uh, but a lot of the cities on California's coast do not recycle the sewer water. It goes right in the ocean. So in that case, put in a low-flow sh showerhead, really do conserve water. And then, of course, uh, you don't pump as much. You don't treat the water with as much chemical. And now in ag, uh, there's a, a big misconception about, about ag because most of the ag inefficiencies are just recycled. So uh, they aren't really lost. They go in the groundwater and recharge the groundwater, for example. So it's a little more difficult ag to have true water conservation, but there's a big exception for Southern California, and that's Imperial Valley. And um, because the inefficiencies there go into the salt and sea, those are lost. They're not recycled. And so that's why MWD and San Diego County Water Authority have entered into water conservation programs with Imperial. And uh, then what happens is if they can water from going into Salton Sea, they, what they do is divert it from the Colorado River instead, and it goes to the aqueduct and ends up in the Southern California area. So that's a mouthful, but that's a start anyway. Wow. It uh, truly is intertwined. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just, and people are finally understanding it. Uh, so, you know, we have all sorts of legislation for Things they all have acronyms like Sigma, you know, it's the Groundwater Management Act, and so on, and and um, you know these things. We're in a democracy, so things take a while for people to really, you know, get interested in things. But uh, yeah, the, the science has been there for ages. Um, it's just not hasn't been generally very exciting for most people. They run out of water. I might add that just since uh, California is such a diverse state with uh, different geographies and, you know, the aquifers and the snowpack and where the people are and where the weather is, that, you know, to to truly conserve water or get better water use efficiency or, you know, have best management practices really depends on where you are in the state and what the what the local conditions are, what, what that water is. Oh, yeah. Has, I mean, like I mentioned, uh, you know, where you're depends on where your sewer water goes. You know, yeah. if it's uh, being used to uh, recharge an aquifer, which, for example, in Fresno, that's what they do. They have, um, believe it or not, they have leaky acres on the uphill side where they recharge the groundwater. They have uh, well pumps throughout the city of Fresno to deliver water to houses. And then they collect the sewer water, tip it over to the west of the town, treat it, and then they recharge the groundwater. Talk about an intricate uh, uh, system that they have. Yeah. But in other areas, it, it goes in a pipe right out to the ocean. So, you know, there's not that recycling. So, yes, it absolutely depends on where you are. Yeah, right. So, we, you, Charles, you mentioned the fact that we're doing a lot of uh, 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 pumping of groundwater and so forth. 
you know, both uh, the ag sector, urban, industrial, and also environmental. Um, during the last four or five years of the drought, we've, we've really uh, pumped uh, quite a bit of water, if, 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 uh, if I recall. And I'm, I'm just curious, from your perspective, what is the significance of that, the long-term and the short-term effects? Uh, well, um, first of all, it, it, this isn't just California problem. It's, uh, it's what we call groundwater overdraft, and that means you are pulling out more water from the groundwater aquifer than you replace. In other words, the water level is dropping, and it continues to drop. It's just huge worldwide uh, in huge problems in India, China, Mexico, Chile. You know, Nebraska's had this problem for years. And, of course, in California, for, for years, for decades, we'd have, we've had overdraft up near Tulare in the neighborhood of, of uh, estimated for years, um, 2 million acre feet a year. That's a one acre by uh, foot deep. That's a, an acre foot. And uh, it's just gotten worse lately, and people have started to pay attention. And there's just no, no magic. We're using more good, and it's unsustainable. So as a result, the wells dry up. Pumping costs more because they have to pump higher or from a deeper level. The water gets saltier. And then, then a huge one that has really started to catch people's attention is the ground starts to subside. Yeah, subsidence. <laughs> yeah, groundwater, uh, I mean, uh, uh, subsidence to the surface. And that means canals no longer run downhill. No kidding. And um, <laughs> we end up with a big depression somewhere. Yeah, I mean, this is not inches. These are feet, you know. Uh, pipes break, plate glass window shatter, stuff like that. And that starts to catch people's attention. But you, you got to it, – it's a serious problem. It isn't that the groundwater is a problem itself. It's just we don't have enough water. And it's showing up in the groundwater. That's our thermometer. And, and if you put it in context, though, it's very interesting. We have quite a challenge. The, the world population is expected to increase by about 57% by the year 20, uh, 2100, about 6.9 billion people to 10.9. So that's a big increase. And our per capita food consumption is going up. Estimates are throughout the world 4% in the next 15 years. But just as important as that, people are shifting their diet. They want to eat more meat, and it takes more water to grow a pound of meat than a pound of grain. The grain is a stop in between. And so it's um, – I don't want to say it's doom and gloom because there are solutions, but it is something that should catch our attention. There, there have been a lot of projections of food shortages worldwide by 2050, and, and groundwater overdraft, uh, of course, is being estimated by NASA throughout the world. In 2014, there was an estimate of 10 cubic miles overdraft, California Central Valley, 10 cubic miles of water, just pure water. They were taken out more than was replenished. And in uh, northern India, um, it was about a six-year period that they thought about 26 cubic miles of groundwater overdraft. People have been committing suicide in India. You know, their water levels go down. They can't farm. It's a big-time problem. Yeah. So, well, you... um, go ahead. Let's see. Uh, long-term. Long-term. <laughs> There's going to have to be a few things to change. How's that? Well, yeah. I mean, you said you don't want to be doom and gloom. I mean, we have some real challenges, and uh, what... 
what, in your view, should we be doing? I mean, is there technology or behavior changes that you think can uh, come into play, and what yeah, might be I'm, more I'm an optimist. In other words, I, of course, I could talk all evening on this, and we don't have time, but it's always a mix of both um, behavior and technology and money. How's that? Because okay. that, we were to treat our water problem nationwide as if it was a national defense issue, and I think it is, actually. If you start looking at the projections of, less water throughout the world and food problems, it becomes a national defense issue. We right. go a long ways to solving the problem just with technology. I mean, you know, instead of spending money on bombs, and I'm not a pacifist, but, uh, I mean, it's pretty basic. If you spent uh, money in this country, you know, to solve some of these problems, such as water, it would make a huge, huge dent. Desalinization, for example, is very, very expensive. Good on-farm systems on farm irrigation systems can easily cost $2,000 an acre. And uh, quite interestingly, you know, I get around the world quite a bit. I was in Ukraine just two weeks ago. And uh, we we do pay for huge irrigation projects in other countries, but we have really been dropping our investment here in the U.S. I'm not sure why. Um, we do spend a lot of money on environmental studies here, but not as much on some of the solutions. So I think... Uh, one is it costs a lot of money to make changes, but and um, money's there is just not going to these types of problems. The, here, here's another thing, though, in terms of behavior. That one of the biggest water users in California is the environment, and and here's what it is. I personally, you know, I have solar in my house. I have 10,000 gallons of water containers to collect rain. My lawn is on drip the little one I have, and the rest of it's on drip. You know, I'm big on this kind of stuff. I like clean streams, waterways, and fish, but, but what's going on is there are various federal and state agencies that, and I'm talking behavior now, that they're spending huge sums of money on on uh, the delta with fish, and they, and they aren't having results. Let me emphasize that. No results. And they're spending huge amounts of money, and they just keep going at it, and that's behavior. And meanwhile, they're also putting huge limitations on pumping into the California aqueduct that supplies water to Southern Californian farms. And, uh, I mean, it's just a fraction of what it could be. So people keep hoping for the best, and they pump, hoping the faucet will turn back on again, but the faucet isn't getting turned on. People are getting extremely frustrated because of regulations which are going no benefit. So it's it's a huge behavioral issue related to regulators. They make the rules and they have only have little or no limitation on their powers. It's not like legislators or anything. And uh, so we, we do have some excellent individuals who have excellent behavior, but it seems that the majority have swung to an extreme position. They just don't, uh, they disregard concepts such as stop a program if it's not working. So uh, no, that's not what you might expect in terms of uh, <clears throat> discussion on behavior, but it's it's really driving California water right now. And when you say the Delta, you're referring to the San Joaquin-Sacramento Delta that where the Sacramento River and the San Joaquin River come together and flow out towards uh, San Francisco, correct? Right, right. And there, and there are serious issues there. Don't, don't get me wrong. There are serious issues, but, you know, there are a lot of what we call invasive species. There are these fish that came from somewhere else and... and uh, the, um, 
I mean, everybody recognizes that it's not a pristine environment like it used to be. Well, actually, the Delta is an artificial thing. The, the islands there are, are hiked up, you know, a century ago or more. Um, it, it, we're never going to get back to nature on some of this stuff. So it's a question of how you deal with it. And the, um, yeah, it's a very, very controversial thing in how it's being dealt with now. I mean, so the Southern California and a lot of farmers are just really taking the hit big time. So, so Charles, if you were czar, what what would you what would be your hit list of the top three things that we should be doing? Whether that's technology or uh, what what would your first reactions be? I think we have to get a handle on the environmental regulation stuff. I think it's swung way too far, and I'm I'm. I really believe in clean streams and that sort of stuff, but it's swung way too far. That would be number one. Um, then um, we need investment on, uh, and, and I don't know how to get there, by the way. I, I don't know how to get there because there are people embedded in various uh, regulatory agencies who are, are um, this includes Army Corps of Engineers, you know, uh, all, all kinds of groups that, that are uh, like little czars. And so, um, okay, so that's one. <clears throat> so I would be the czar knowing that there's a problem but not knowing exactly how to get into that huge uh, government bureaucracy. Okay. Okay, right. The next thing is on technology. Yeah, I, I would I would really the water problem as one similar to a national defense issue. Um, invest, invest more in technology. Take more of our, our dollars and invest it in like technology to improve the water districts or the on-farm or all sensors or big data or all of the above? All of the above, yeah. All of the above. And, okay. and then the, another one relates sort of to behavior, and that is there's a whole body of science that we don't know well as I think we should, and this relates to ag. Um, we're learning more that, that ag is a complete system. What we really want to do is get more yield, like more tons of whatever, not use as much water that goes into the air. You know, that's called evapotranspiration. And we um, have solid proof that you can do it, but we there's still a lot to learn on that. And that's really what's going to turn the game around in terms of having enough food. We have to really understand the intricacies of how you grow wheat and corn and alfalfa and nuts and fruit and how to get the most per drop of water. I mean, really increase the yield. Kind of like the we need a new green revolution. Yeah, it's just more the the green revolutions. I've been part of that. I was part of the IR five. I you know the rice stuff and you know the varieties. Yeah, I mean basically the water the the world has been saved from starvation by two things. One is a few new varieties in in wheat and rice, and then the other one was um, in expanded acreage uh, in irrigation but we've expanded too far. And so those were relatively simple to do. See, this now is going to be more complex because it's a whole process of farming, scientific farming. Yeah. Well, I guess we have about one more minute left, uh, Paul. Do you have a question? Charles, I uh, just uh, wanted to thank you for your time. And uh, in the minute we have left, any uh, closing thoughts that uh, you would like to leave our listeners with? No, I would say one thing. I guess, yeah, I guess one thing. 
you know, we really don't know how good it is to abandon lawns, for example. We, you know, they cool the air, create oxygen in that, and, and I don't know all the details of that, but I think we have to be a little careful about rushing into some of these conservation programs. In terms of removal of uh, turf grass? Yeah, yeah, even though I've cut my lawn in half, you know. Uh, I mean, but still, they're, they're, you know, the Amazon is disappearing, and, um, you know, we need plants out there. How's that? Yeah, yeah. No, we would agree. In fact, we've done some num – we've run some numbers, and we're not going to be able to share that right now because we're out of time, but we'd like to um, have that discussion with you off offline uh kind of the productivity of a lawn program versus the productivity of an agricultural uh, modernization program. So maybe food for thought for the next session. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, we could talk for ages. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Charles, and congratulations for to you and your colleagues uh, at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo for your uh, IA award, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Well, welcome back to the Water Zone. Hope everybody's having a great day. And uh, we'll continue with uh, some news and information about ag, agriculture for those uh, who don't know our jingle. Uh, but anyway, uh, Inge, Paul, it's all back to you. All right. Thank you, uh, Rob. Uh, well, I hope you enjoyed, uh, everybody, that uh, our previous guest, Dr. Charles Burt from Cal Poly. And I know that you're going to uh, enjoy our next guest as well. Um, he's very well-known, um, prominent farmer in, in California who travels extensively and is doing all sorts of things. And uh, I'll give him an introduction. Uh, Don, are you there? I'm here, Ingie. Wonderful. Great to be with you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, well, let me let me let the uh, the listeners know a little bit about you before we dive into some questions. Um, Don is the Don Cameron is our guest, and he's the general manager of Terra Nova Ranch in Helm, California. That's just a little southwest of Fresno. Uh, he went to school at uh, Cal State University Fresno and got a degree in biology, and obviously he's ended up in farming. Uh, and since 1981, has been uh, the vice president general manager of Terra Nova, and uh, they farm about 6,000 acres, and he also farms about 1,500 acres of his own um, for other clients. So these 6,000 acres, I I'm just amazed when I um, consider how many different crops you grow, Don. It's a you know mix of conventional organic and biotech crops, you know, alfalfa corn, um, some, you know, all the fruit, nut, and vegetables, the grapes, almonds, pistachios, olives, prunes. I don't know how you keep track of all of them, 26 different crops. But even more impressive is just all the work that you're doing in industry as an industry leader. You've gotten the attention of the EPA and the USDA NRCS. Uh, San Joaquin Valley Air Pollution Control District, and you were, were actually even visited by the EPA Administrator Lisa Jackson recently, and you've been uh, recognized for your participation in diesel engine replacement programs, energy conservation measures, and water conservation efforts. And last but not least, you're very active in the California Cotton Alliance, SUPEMA, National Cotton Council, American Cotton Producers, California Tomato Growers Associations, and, and the Cotton Foundation. So... Quite an impressive uh, resume there, Don. Hey, tell us, how did you get involved in agriculture and end up in the small farming community of Helm with a degree in biology from uh, Fresno State? <laughs> yeah, quite a unique uh, history. Uh, you know, Inge, I've always enjoyed being outdoors and knew that I, I wasn't going to spend my adult life in an office when I was fairly young. 
Um, I had actually no agricultural background whatsoever and had planned to go into wildlife management after uh, after graduating from college. As it turned out, a lot of other people wanted to get into that field, and luckily I was passed up by a computer that didn't draw my name for an <laughs> interview. So uh, <laughs> well, life has a way of working itself out, Yeah, and I got involved uh, uh, with an agricultural laboratory and uh, pretty much saw everyone else's problems and... Uh, did a lot of problem solving, uh, became a licensed uh, pest control advisor, and then became uh, manager at Terranova in 1981. So it's uh, it's been an interesting uh, life for me. I, I've got to admit, I, I love it. That's outstanding. That's outstanding. Um, Don, I'm curious. You, you've been obviously recognized by... Uh, uh, the USDA and EPA, as well as many others, were being a leader in the farming community with the implementation of technology and for your conservation efforts. I'm just curious if you could share with our listeners what specifically are you doing for uh, for uh, your irrigation management? Uh, but in that broad uh, diversity of crops, uh, that's got to be uh, uh, hugely challenging, not just to manage uh uh, cotton or or corn or uh, leafy greens or melons or whatever it might be, tree crops. You've got 26 different crops, both organic and inorganic, that uh, are conventional that uh, that you're using this technology on. Tell us a little bit, if you would, first about the types of technology that you find most useful and how you're implementing it. Sure, uh, Paul. We, uh, we began drip irrigation back in 1981 uh, with the vineyard that we had uh, just planted. And since then, any trees that we've planted, any additional vineyard, has all been on above-the-ground above uh, drip irrigation. In 2008, uh, we decided to try subsurface drip irrigation on processing tomatoes uh, that we grow. We started with 120 acres. And our yields jumped from 40 tons per acre to 60 tons per acre. And so the following year, we converted um, over 2,000 acres to buried subsurface drip irrigation. And since then, we've applied that same technology to almost every crop, uh, field crop that we grow that's suitable for that type of irrigation. So we've made major changes in the way we irrigate. You know, we used to flood irrigate and furrow irrigate, which uh, use quite a bit more water. So we're real careful about the water that we use. Um, we use irrigation scheduling that uses evapotranspiration guidelines for each crop and for each stage of growth. Uh, we have moisture probes that are buried as deep as five feet in some of our tree crops that I can I can pull up on my computer to see what's going on in each field and look at the history. Um, you know, we do aerial photos on a uh, every two weeks during the summer, and we look at moisture stress. We use NDVI for plant biomass, and we can see problem areas in, in each field down to a really small area so that if we're you know, if we're short of water, we can apply more. If we're applying too much, we can cut back. 
And you know what what can't be beat is actually going out to the field and walking the fields and checking them really firsthand. That's that's hard to beat. So obviously, this that's an impressive list of technologies that you're you have employed uh, without uh, throughout the farm. What does that do to your labor requirements? Have is you know obviously to maintain those pieces of equipment and so forth. How has that changed your 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 labor force? How do you, how do you manage all that? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the man, you know, we we started. Uh, we didn't start growing twenty six crops in one day. We or one year. <laughs> you know, we we began expanding. Um, we got away from some of the older crops that we used to grow. We we don't grow cotton anymore, um, and we've gone to a higher dollar. Of vegetables and seed crops and trees and vines, and we've taken one on. Uh, you know, we may take one on a year, two on a year, and we see what fits um, and how it can fit into our program with our crop rotation, uh, and how how we can best, really best, uh, make it work for us, and hopefully at the end of the year be profitable. That's uh, and without being profitable, you know, we, we can't continue. So, uh, But, you know, with, with we, new technology, with change, I mean, in, in anything in our lives, when we get a new gadget, and here you've, you've just listed five or six or seven new technologies that you've incorporated into your irrigation management, how, how specifically did you successfully adopt these things? Where did you get help? Did, did you have to train yourselves? Did, was there a learning curve? Was there a lot of time commitment? Or did somebody walk you through it? You you know, some, really of the tech, some of the technology, you know, we hear from other growers. Um, we we always have somebody that would like to sell us some new technology. And to be honest with you, uh, so much of it doesn't fit the program that we employ here. So we we may try it on a small scale, and then if it looks good, we'll expand on it. Uh, same with the crops. We may try uh, a small as as small as a one acre piece of ground. Uh, with a new crop to see how well it'll grow here, or if it'll even grow at all. I mean, we've we've grown things from you know it's, it's kind of off the wall as Waiuli, which is a natural latex plant. Uh, for, we grew that for seed for several years. To uh, we've even tried growing chia out here, chia seed. So uh, we we grew stevia seed um, quite some time ago before it really became popular. So we've, we've tried a lot of different things and a lot of new technology, and, and some of it works great, and some of it we try and find it just doesn't doesn't work for us. So uh, we, we do have a lot of um, people that would, you know, that show us what technology is coming, and because we've been fairly cutting edge, uh, they like, uh, you know, they like us to try it, so they will bring it to us, so... That's so a real they, plus for us. So the technology providers have helped you a little bit too then? Yeah, they really have. And we go to the, you know, the farm equipment shows where they have, uh, where they showcase a lot of the new technology and, and we pick through it and we try to find something that, that will improve what we do here. Yeah, yeah. Well, kind of a different topic. Uh, you've been in the news uh, lately about your work with um, helping to recharge the groundwater deliberately during you know the winter months when there's when there's rainfall um, flood irrigating orchards uh, during during that time 
uh, and I say deliberately, um, as opposed to flood irrigating during the summer and kind of inadvertently recharging the groundwater via flood irrigation, which of course has has the disadvantage of um, possibly contaminating the groundwater with it with the, with the nutrients with the fertilizers. T- tell us how that's going, and if that's really uh, something viable that can be adopted over larger acreages and, and help us recharge our our groundwater safely, uh, if you will, in the future. Right. Uh, you know, in in actually prior to 2010. Um, we, we've been trying to capture flood water uh, as it passes. We have the North Fork of the Kings River that passes a portion of the ranch, and we've been able to access some of that flood water in past years to offset uh, groundwater irrigation. Um, in 2011, we got a, a, a grant to do a test project, and lo and behold, flood water showed up, and that was really the last time we've seen it. Um, and we were able to prove that we could flood existing farmland and recharge our aquifer. We actually had uh, wine grapes with about a foot, foot and a half of water on them for over five months without any detrimental problems. We started in January and finished up at the end of May. Uh, and we were able to put quite a bit of water into the uh, into our into our groundwater. So. We, we saw that the results were good, and so we're now in the fourth year of a major project that will be expanding on that idea, and that'll be bringing in 16,000 acres of ground, of, of farmland in our area uh, to bring it into a, a, a floodwater capture program that we can flood when we're able to, uh, when the flood water does come, primarily during the winter and spring months, and then farm the rest of the time. So we have a real ambitious product, uh, project here, uh, and it, it's kind of, you know, when we have the water, we're going we're gonna to flood and capture it and put it back down into the ground, and when we don't have it, we're going to be using micro uh, irrigation technology so that we only apply uh, water for exactly what the plant needs. So, and and by doing that, we're going to change some of our practices here. We're not going to, you know, we, we have a pretty good idea of when we'll be seeing flood water come. You know, if the reservoirs are already full and more rains predicted, we're going to hold off on any nitrogen applications to the fields that we're going to be flooding, so that we can lessen the chance of moving any nitrates into our into our groundwater. Now for us it's uh it's very important that we keep our groundwater clean for ourselves and for our neighboring communities. So we really don't want to have issues. You know when we when we do farm with a drip irrigation, we we put our fertilizer through the drip directly to the plant so that it's a very high efficiency that's taken up by the plant. We use leaf sampling throughout the season so that we don't apply more nitrogen than the plant needs. And we do soil sampling following the crop to see if there was any nitrogen or any other nutrients uh, remaining so that we can cut back on fertility uh, measures for the following year. So it's, it's a pretty complex strategy, but we really think that we can put a lot of water back into the soil here and back to the groundwater. Um, unfortunately, 
we've been through five years of drought and we haven't seen any flood water that we could capture. So we know that on an average, it's about every three and a half years. And so we want to put the infrastructure in to capture the flood water when it does come by so that uh, we can make the best possible use of it. So uh, that's our goal. And uh, so far we've, uh, we've been really innovative. We've been the leaders in, in uh, the new technology of flooding existing farmland trees, vines. Uh, UC Davis has picked up on our concept and partnered with Sustainable Conservation to uh, implement this in many other areas uh, throughout California. Inge, can I interrupt for a second? We have a, we have a caller online, but I had, a, I had a question. It's a silly question. Um, you talked about, he talked about chia seed? Yes. Is that what they use for chia pets? That is exactly what they use it for, but they, it's also used as a uh, as a you know it's a food that's used in uh, many of the smoothies and many of the other things. And uh, we actually tried that, and uh, we got it to grow, but we couldn't really get a good seed crop, and uh, so we we backed away from it. Uh, we have tried a quite a few different uh, crops here, and like I say, some have been real successful. We do a lot of lettuce seeds, kale seeds, uh, a lot of other crops here that are that most people won't tackle. Oh, well, I appreciate that. I learned something. See, it's a it's a good good show for learning things. Anyway, we have uh, our other host, uh, Mike Barron, who's off today, but he's calling in because I know he's an avid listener. Uh, Mike, you had a question. Yes, um, Don. Uh, very fascinating what you're doing in terms of trying to capture floodwaters, although during the five-year drought, haven't had that much opportunity. But I'd read something about that, it, uh, some research at UC Davis. Um, are you uh, involving researchers in any of the universities or an agency of the, um, you know, California, a California state agency in, in your efforts to create an infrastructure that will allow you to recharge groundwater? Yeah, I think I heard most of your question there. Um, yes, when we initiated our, uh, we actually applied for a grant through our local conservation district, Kings River Conser- uh, Conservation District, and received a a grant from the Department of Water Resources to uh, help implement our project here. We have a, a a match that we have to put into it, so. Uh, this project, uh, we brought in sustainable conservation. We brought in uh, University of California Davis and several other researchers to study some of the things that we were talking about earlier, water movement, salt movement, and nitrogen movement in the soil to ensure that we don't create a problem by doing on-farm recharge like this. So, uh, we are setting all of our projects up for monitoring and involving the university uh, at uh, University of California Davis with this project. So it's uh, it's quite a few groups that are that have come together to make this work. Well, that's 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 fascinating. And are you using uh, any moisture sensing technology as part of your overall effort? Um, was that for our farming or for the recharge? I was thinking for the recharge or, or for the, and, and for the farming, each, each one. 
Right. When we did our initial study, we actually uh, had test holes to monitor uh, movement of water and of salts and of nitrogen. So um, we did quite a bit of monitoring with the uh, during the six-month period that we had flood water available in, in, in 2011. So we got a lot of really good data, a lot of good scientific data. It wasn't that we just went out and randomly flooded a few fields. Um, it was a very technical study, and it, it really showed that we could do a project like this and really provide a lot of benefit to the area. Yeah, that's great. And then in your ongoing farming of, of your crops, uh, do you use any moisture-sensing technologies? I, I didn't catch all of that. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. Uh, Donnie was asking you, uh, about the moisture sensing technologies that it was one of the six or seven things that you uh, listed uh, in your uh, response to one of Ingi's questions about all the new technology that you're uh, implementing into your uh, farming operations. Right. The moisture sensing technology that we've been using have been soil mo uh, moisture probes that, that show every four inches a moisture reading down to a depth of five feet and so that we can predict when we will actually need to irrigate again and so that we don't over-apply water or under-apply water and we can schedule our, our irrigations much more efficiently and and really do a, a, a better job with the irrigations that we do. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and, you know, and we, we also do the aerial photos that show plant stress, plant mass, and it's been amazing to see some of the the uh, the patterns that we see in our fields. Uh, we may we may be thinking we're doing something correctly, and then we find out that we may be shorting one portion of the field for water or or over applying. So we've been able to take uh, we can take the aerial photos and take them actually out to the field and show the the uh, the people that we have working on those fields, where the problems are and how to correct them. So it's been a real plus for us. And we always try to bring new technology in, but we want to make it make it simplify our life and not make it more complicated, if, if that's possible. Exactly. Um, I know you've been very active in uh, Sacramento uh, representing farmers around the state uh, uh, with the uh, California Department of Food and Agriculture, but also on the national level. Um, I'm just curious, you've got such a full plate. Why why, uh, why are you taking this leadership position? Uh, I, uh, don't get me wrong, we, we all appreciate your efforts and applaud them, but I, what, uh, what is your motivation and what kind of successes have, or outcomes have you seen as a result of those efforts? I'll tell you what, I was never one that wanted to do public speaking. Uh, that was probably the last thing I ever wanted to do and get involved in any type of even remotely political issue. And uh, but what I found is that, you know, since I had firsthand experience, that I, be I felt really qualified to speak on, on behalf of agriculture and the issues that we face. You know, we're, farmers are so efficient today uh, because of the technology and, and just the expertise we have here in the United States, that it just takes very few of us 
to to produce the abundant food supply that we do. And so I felt that uh, that we're, we're such a small number that we need to speak on our own behalf. Uh, we need to educate others on how we farm and and you know the issues that we face and the problems we face every day to the point to where I, I actually now enjoy it, uh, which is pretty crazy for me to say. But um, <laughs> I, I think that, you know, we, we do a lot of different outreach programs uh, we our farm has been a very open uh, farm. We bring uh, quite a few people through, but you know the the successes. Um, they're, they're, you know there've been several, but one we, that always makes me happy is when we bring school children out and show them what we're doing and how we're doing it, and open their eyes to the world of of, of agriculture. I mean it's uh, it's amazing to see them go out the field and and pick some of the crops we, we grow and take them home with them. But, you know, one one that really stood out that was memorable to me, and uh, I was asked to speak at Yale um, several years ago on organic farming and biotech farming and coexistence uh, between the two. And I'll be honest, I was pretty apprehensive about going there. Um, I wasn't sure how I'd be perceived. And we got to talking about farming and some of the details. And at the end of the program, no one left. And we went on for a, for another half hour before the professor finally had to end it and uh, moved on. But it was probably one of the most fun and rewarding uh, speaking engagements that I've had. It's uh, It was just amazing. People just have no idea what we do on a day-to-day basis and some of the challenges we face, you know, all the way from, you know, the weather is fairly simple. I hate to say that, but, uh, you know, some of the other issues that we face, the marketing, the sales, the harvest, uh, and the regulations um, never fail to uh, make me wonder how we get through the day sometimes. Yeah. Well, uh, Don, we uh, our time's about up. We certainly thank you for uh, being such a wonderful ambassador for for agriculture, and uh, wish you luck. Thank you for being a customer as well, and uh, keep up the good work. And thank you for coming on as a guest tonight. Thank you very much, indeed. All right. Good night. Well, that wraps up the show tonight. We appreciate it. I I learned something about uh, uh, chia seeds. 